Good morning. The scripture reading, turn to Psalm, Psalms 40. I had the privilege of reading this together with my family last evening, and I just asked them to give me just a few words that were key thoughts as we read this, and it was very interesting at the little glimmers of honesty that came through. And one that uh, probably resonated with me, it didn't completely, the whole phrase didn't completely make sense originally, but as I thought about it, it made more sense. One child said that God is a patient and a God that is great. I said, now how does that flow? And the more I thought about it, I said, that is true. God is a patient God, and in that picture of his patience, he can be great. Um, also, words of greatness and God being big and a steadfast love. This is all popped out. So as, as we read, open your heart to what God has to say to us. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth and a new song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will, I will proclaim and tell of them, and yet they are more than can be told. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I desire to do your will, O my God, your laws within my heart. I have told you the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great con congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number, and my iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation and say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. May those who love your salvation 
say continually, great is the Lord. Welcome you here this morning to our time of looking at God's word. Um, It's good to see a number of people that I don't think I've seen here before. So it's good to have you with us. Um, You're filling in the gaps for all of those of us who are gone. And so um, thank you for that. Hopefully, as we look at God's word, that we can see the glory of Christ. I have been uh, doing a sermon series through the Gospel of Mark, and you'll notice that our text this morning is Hebrews 10 and doesn't necessarily flow in line with the next step in Mark. And um, as I was considering our our next text in Mark in chapter 7, it's, um, it's a fairly harsh text. And I wasn't sure that that fit directly after Christmas. And I had run across Hebrews 10 um, in the past month or so, and, and the words of that text continued to draw me. And so um, it felt fitting to bring that in here. Hebrews 10 defines for us the gift that is Christ. In Christmas, we see Christ as the baby and we celebrate His coming. But Hebrews 10 describes to us the magnitude of the gift that He brings. And so our reflection will be on that this morning. Again, our text is Hebrews uh, chapter 10, looking at verses 1-18. through And I will read that at this time. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered once for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God 
waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is God's Word. If you consider the context of Hebrews in the previous chapters to this, the writer is attempting to make the case that Jesus came in the nature of the law, in the nature of the sacrifices, but He came as the better sacrifice, as the better priest, as the full image of God's grace to us. This text continues as a a logical argument, and so the writer is attempting to create definite points to have us consider. And so he refers to that in in the first section there where he says, the law is but a shadow. And a shadow is an interesting word in there because it's not just an image or a representation. But you see, if, if I had light here that would cast a shadow, it would be in nature me. It's not someone's image of me. It's not someone's description of me. But it is actually me. So there's a sense in that the law is a shadow of Christ, but it's represented by Him. And He is, in a sense, creating that shadow. It's a shadow of the good things to come. The law was not merely a placeholder or something to um, to work or it wasn't try number one in the sanctification of humanity. It was a shadow of Christ. Another thing that we see throughout this text is a progression. And so he begins there in verse 1, for since the law. And then in verse 2, otherwise, something else would have happened. And in, chap- in verse 5, consequently, And continuing on, he continues to make this progression of argument. Another thing we notice is very declarative language. The the, the writer of Hebrews is is not attempting to leave anything to our imagination. He's not making statements that can be quibbled about. The, The language he uses is very declarative. It can never once for all, for it is impossible. I have come to do your will. The writer is making very clear, concrete statements about Christ. And so, let's take that in mind. I'd like to kind of step through the passage a little bit and, and bring out some of the language that we see. 
There's three words or three things that I would like you to focus on as we do that. First of all, the word never. Second of all, the idea of Christ coming as once for all. And then finally, we see in the Holy Spirit a covenant. And so first of all, the law came and the law was a shadow of Christ and we've looked at that. But he develops here that that if the law, if the law could in fact save us, if the law would have in fact saved us, then why would the people continually have to come and offer? Why would they year after year have to offer the same sacrifices if the law could fully save us? then it would do so. But the necessity to come back and offer again and again and again. We have that language that that continues in verse 1. It can never. In verse 4, it is impossible. In verse 6, no possibility or no pleasure. Verse 11, can never take away sin. If we examine Leviticus chapters 1-7, to we see this unpacking of what the law was, of what the individual sacrifices, this for this sin, this for that sin, this for this unintentional sin, this for this intentional sin, and on and on and on. We see in the sacrifices a reminder of sin. And so if one must make a particular sacrifice for each individual sin, one is continually in remembrance of one's sin. Life is lived introspectively. I must be very careful about absolutely everything I do because if I do it incorrectly, then I must bring a sacrifice for that action. And life is lived with perspective on oneself. One must be self-aware. Now, there's a sense in which this is God writing this law. And it is. Leviticus is God giving the law to the people. In our world today, we don't exist under this law. We don't see this law as governing us. But I think we are also, we also tend to live this way. We live in a way that sees introspection on oneself. I must inspect everything I do. I must be terribly careful about every little action. And I must be careful that that if an action exists that may possibly be wrong, then I put it to rights. The law's point was to be followed to bring one to God. And if we live our lives that way, we live a life that is conscious of sinfulness that is conscious of self, that is self-centered in a lot of ways. It really is the law of human effort. We say, I will sacrifice this or that in order to prove to God that I am worthy of His grace. Or I will choose a particular lifestyle to bend God's will towards me. 
So why is this inadequate? It's inadequate because it continually reminds us of ourselves. We are continually forced to return and make sacrifice because we realize that it's never enough. No amount of self-understanding and self-reformation will ever get to the bottom of our sinfulness. And in the law, we remain conscious of sin. We live our lives with sin at the center of our being. And so this law, either the Leviticus law or the law of human effort, is inadequate because it fails to solve sin eternally. And it places the focus of salvation on the wretchedness of man. But Jesus enters this picture. And verse 5 says that when Jesus came into the world, and He's quoting from Psalm 40 there, when He says, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do Your will, O God. And then verses 8-10 through point to us what Jesus is attempting to do in that. And it's primarily, the text says, that He is doing away with the first. He's doing away with law as a means of understanding ourselves with law as a means of making ourselves right with God. And He's bringing the Gospel. Jesus came to do the will of God. And in doing that will, His accomplishment replaces the demands of the law. The first is overcome with the second. We see these words as well throughout our text. In verse 10, once for all. Jesus came once for all. In verse 12 and verse 14, for all time. We have Jesus on the cross echoing these words, it is finished. That once for all, Humanity can be reconciled with God. Again, the words here are definite and sure. There are no caveats. There are no conditions. The believer is eternally secure and purchased once for all by the sacrifice of Christ. Once for all. Again, our issue, I think, with some of that language, with the term eternally secure, is that we often present that idea from a human perspective. From a perspective that says, now I'm saved, I can live and behave however I wish. Romans 6 clearly squashes that idea 
the Bible presents a very different understanding of eternal security. It's eternal security that's bound in the character and being of God. It's bound in the fully sufficient sacrifice of Christ. And so, our text would tell us once for all. Verse 10, And by that will, the will of God, the will of God to replace the law with the Savior. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And verse 14, For a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Romans 8, nothing will separate us from the love of God. John 10, no one will snatch them from my hand. John 5, the one who hears my message and believes the one who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned, but has crossed over from death to life. Again, we could add qualifications to these, but the, but the text does that. Excuse me, I'm misinterpreting my notes here. The idea is that Christ has done this once for eternity. And this is from God's perspective. We can trust that God will be faithful. Our eternal security is not based on our actions. It's based on God's faithfulness. And we could get into who qualifies. I think our text does that a little bit in verse 1. Those who draw near. In verse 2, the worshipers of God. In verse 14, those who are being sanctified. So there are people who are drawing near to God, who are drawing near to Christ, who are placing their trust in Him. They are worshipers of God. And they're being sanctified. And finally, our text gives us a covenant. A covenant that is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. And there's three elements to that covenant. First, I will put. I will put this law on their hearts. Now, no longer running to a book no longer running to Leviticus to figure out which place I went wrong and what I must do. But through the Holy Spirit, God has written His law on our hearts. And what that means is that as our hearts are inclined towards God, as our hearts seek to follow Him, then we live out of that heart's passion. The passion to love God, to seek His glory, to seek His fame. And we do that because He has purchased our salvation. Second of all, I will write them. I will write them on their minds. And so, the saved heart, the heart being sanctified is passionately following God, is committed to His glory. The mind is then renewed 
The Spirit writes God's law on our minds. And in the application of our mind, we seek to know Him. We seek to know His Word. We seek to give the world the knowledge that God has pressed on our hearts and on our minds. And finally, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. God promises that our sins are taken care of. What a glorious gift. You see, before Christ, humanity was bound in figuring things out themselves. Was bound by law. Was bound by the law of nature that God placed into our world. And in a sense, they had to figure it out themselves. And we see the children of Israel who God came to and chose and directed and He gave them law. But everyone else was lost. In Christ, that is reversed. His law is not merely for us to chase and find. But He puts it in our hearts. He writes it on our minds. And He forgives our sins forever. So how does this affect our life? How does this gift grant us fullness of life? I fought around for proper applications here and ways to, to try to describe this. And the one I kept coming back to was the idea of a rich father. A rich father who says to his son, son, I want you to go into business. Let's say he's a real estate person. I want you to pursue this with all of your passion, with all of your energy. And I've got the money. And if you fail, I'll back you up. If you fail, I'll take care of you. Now that rich father isn't saying go lie, cheat, steal, and get as rich as you can however you want. He's saying go and buy the goodness of the laws of business. By the laws of honesty. By the laws of um, doing things the right way. Go and be successful. Go and pursue bringing the glory of God into that field. There's a sense in which the glory of the Gospel does not enslave us to continually be aware of sin and continually be conscious of sinfulness. To be continually trying to make sacrifice. But in a sense, it frees us to live a God-honoring life with abandon. To seek God with all of our heart, with all of our mind. Without the nagging worry, am I doing this right? Am I doing that right? And be continually caught in ourselves. Is this right? Is this wrong? Is this right? Is this wrong? 
We are free to pursue the glory of God in our sphere of influence with abandonment. Again, this does not give us the right to pursue it unworthily or unholy. It is by God's character. It is by His will. It is in His way. But once for all, Christ came and made one sacrifice for sin for all of eternity. And in the goodness of God, each of us can live a life that in the eyes of the Father is perfect. Again, verse 14. For by a single offering, He has perfected. Christian, that is a gift. That is a gift beyond measure. That is a gift no earthly sum can find a worth of. That is a gift worth opening every day. That is a gift worth planting your life upon and seeking the goodness and glory of God with abandon. And so I ask you, is your faith bound up in the first? In your ability to perceive? In your ability to reform yourself? In your ability to choose the best and proper lifestyle? Or is your faith bound up in the second? The Christ. The goodness of God. In your perfected identity as a son of God. May we pray. Father, this morning we are grateful most of all for the gift of your son. For the one who came and for the one who once for all stood in our place. The one who was sacrificed on our behalf. And the one who takes away the sin of the world. Father, I pray that you would continually place our minds as you promised to do on that goodness. Father, that you would write upon our hearts your law that You would write upon our minds Your law, and that in that identity we would bring Your glory to the world around us. And Father, that we would rest not in our abilities, not in our goodness, not in our willingness, but that we would rest on Your perfect sacrifice. We would place the whole of our eternal trust on You and on Your ability to present us faultless before the Father. Father, I pray that we would do this for Your glory. We ask this through our Savior Christ. Amen.